Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, September 5th, 2021 by me, Rob Schaff. This is the final message in our summer sermon series entitled Faith in Action, Lessons Learned from Old Testament Saints. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. My name is Rob Schaff. I'm the pastor of Discipling here at Sardis Fellowship. And today is the last sermon in our Faith in Action, Lessons Learned from Old Testament Saints series. We've been working through Hebrews 11, which is commonly called the Hall of Faith. And as a quick reminder, Hebrews 11 starts out by saying this, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And the book goes on to demonstrate the various Bible characters who lived their lives this way. And it says this, They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. So the author talks about Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Joseph, and shows how their lives demonstrate this sort of of longing for promise and living in light of it, but not, not actually seeing it fulfilled. And then he gets to the point where he writes this. I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. He's basically saying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't need to keep going. You've read your Bibles, you know the stories, and you get the point that I'm trying to make here. So like Joel two weeks ago, and like Tim last week, the Old Testament saint that we're talking about today is a person who so obviously exemplifies confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see that the author of Hebrews didn't feel the need to rehash the details. Today, we are looking at David. Now, David is a complicated person, uh, to say the least. Where do we start? I'm going to start in the book of Acts. Paul, in the book of Acts, gives a summary of the story of the nation of Israel. And when he gets to King David, he says this. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. Paul is echoing what the prophet Samuel said to Saul regarding David in 1 Samuel 13, 14. David, a man after God's own heart. And that's where I would like to start. When we think of a man after God's own heart, we get to picture that God's heart and David's heart were in some sort of unusual and noteworthy alignment. Like they're both pulling in the same direction. It's kind of like when I happen to like a really nerdy movie, like say Star Trek Four, which is awesome. Uh, and not a lot of people like it, though. Uh, but when I happen to find like a youth who just so happens to like Star Trek Four, I'm like, oh, man, you are a person after my own heart. Because in that particular area, their interests just so happen to align with my interests. That's kind of how we use that expression. Uh, in the words of N.T. Wright, though, that's, that's not really what it means biblically. The English expression, man after God's own heart, sounds as if it implies someone who has the kind of character that pleases God. Actually, it, means, it needs to mean only someone whom God's heart is set on, someone whom God chooses. So David, the man whom God has his heart set on. We need to keep that in mind because that's important for later. So other than that, David's story can be found in First and Second Samuel, a bit in First Kings, and in First Chronicles. And he's credited with writing about a third of the book of Psalms, uh, many of which almost read like his own personal prayer journal. And he kind of inspired the other two thirds. And his kingship came to be understood in messianic terms. And there are over 1,000 references to David and his kingship 
in the Old Testament. So today I would like to systematically work through every single one of them. Just kidding. Where do we get to the heart of David in the middle of all of this? It's huge. You could literally preach on David for a year. What did the author of Hebrews have in mind when they casually dropped David's name in this list without any explanation? How does David exemplify faith that is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see? Well, with a character as big as David, there's no way that I'm going to get everything in. Uh, but I think that I figured out a way that we can at least start the conversation and get us thinking about what lessons we can learn in light of David being included in the Hall of Faith. So to narrow it down, we're going to be playing a little game. It's a fill in the name, fill in the name, fill in the blank name game. And we'll do it three times. Uh, and because this is being pre-recorded right now, I have used Google's auto fill to uh, do the names, but when I'm preaching this live in person on Sunday, I'm going to see what people say just because it'll be fun. But anyway, here we go. According to Google, the very first thing that people think of when they think of David and blank is David and Goliath. That's the first hit on Google. And of course it is. Uh, it's probably the most well-known chapter of David's life because it is told in both Sunday schools and sports highlight reels alike. It has become David and Goliath, the ultimate underdog metaphor, where a smaller and a weaker person faces a bigger and stronger adversary. And against all odds, the underdog prevails. So, you know, if the Canucks win, it's a miracle, just like David and Goliath. Now, I don't actually know sports, uh, but even I know that the Canucks had a pretty lousy year last year, and it would take a miracle to turn it around. And someday, when they win that unlikely game, people will say, wow, it was a real David and Goliath moment. But it's not just sports, it's movie plots, it's business and economic articles, you name it. We love a good underdog story, and uh, we like to read them onto pretty much every realm of life imaginable. But even though that's how the story is used in the popular imagination, David and Goliath, it kind of misses the point a little bit. So the story of David and Goliath is found in 1 Samuel 17, and if you don't know the story, there is a literal giant named Goliath. Goliath is a champion warrior of the Philistine army who, of you know, all of the Israelites are afraid to face him because he's huge and he's well-equipped with armor and he will destroy anyone who dares to face him. Whenever he steps to the line to challenge the Israelites to a duel for the fates of both nations, the whole army of Israel cowers. And David isn't even in the army. He's just a young shepherd who's basically one day on an errand to deliver sandwiches to his brothers, and he overhears this giant taunting and mocking the Israelite army, and by extension, mocking God. And David decides that he's going to fight Goliath. And everyone's like, that's a terrible idea. And he goes and he tells King Saul, I'm going to fight Goliath. And he says, you're just a kid, that's a bad idea. But David says that even as a shepherd, he has killed lions and he's killed bears when they attacked him. David knows two things. He knows his own capabilities. And more than that, he knows God's capabilities. He says, the God who rescued me from the hand of the lion and the bear, he will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David may have killed lions and bears with his own two hands, but it could have gone either way. And he knows that. He knows that it was God's capable hands that brought him through it. And if God could bring him through that, God will bring him through this. And Saul's like, 
Ugh, this kid's crazy, but okay, you better take my armor and you better take my sword. But David leaves all of that behind and he opts to face the giant with a sling and five stones that he put in his shepherd's bag. And I love that they make a point to say that it's a shepherd's bag because it just kind of underscores uh, how out of his league he is, in my opinion. So David and Goliath face off. Goliath taunts him, and David answers him like this. You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh armies, God of the ranks of Israel, who you have reproached. This day God will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And God delivers Goliath into David's hands with a well-placed stone, and David cuts off Goliath's head. And the moral of the story is, don't underestimate the underdog. No. No, 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 no. That's not the moral. The moral of the story is that God is no underdog. David really gets it right. He is confident in what he hopes for. He's assured of what he cannot see. He's brave, and he takes action, trusting that God will see it through. God is pleased. David did everything that God wanted him to do. Now, that is the first name in our name game. So on to round two. David and the second hit Google gives me is Bathsheba. Second Samuel 11 and 12 tells the story, and it's the total opposite of the first story. It's the time of year when all of the kings go to fight war, and David's army is away fighting a war, but David is in Jerusalem. He's at home. And King David is walking on the roof of his palace, and he spots on a different roof another woman, another woman. He spots on a different roof a woman bathing. He finds out that she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who's one of David's 37 warriors of note. David knows that she's married, but he sends for her anyway, and he sleeps with her. He's the king after all. He gets what he wants. And it turns out that she gets pregnant. And so to cover up evidence of the king's sin, the king's adultery, King David schemes to have Uriah sleep with his wife so that the child will pass off as Uriah's. But Uriah is too loyal to the king's causes and to his fellow soldiers to sleep with his wife while the rest of them are off suffering and fighting at war. And ironically, in these moments, Uriah the Hittite is behaving as the king should a lot more than David the Israelite. Uriah's heart is with the plight of the people, with the causes of God. He is uninterested in the luxuries of home when all of his comrades are fighting and dying far away from it. So, because Uriah will not participate in David's scheme, David schemes again. He schemes to have Uriah killed in battle. He sends Uriah back to battle with a letter that contains his own death sentence. They are to push the front line forward, and Uriah is to be at the very front. And as he is leading the charge into battle, everybody else is to pull back and retreat. And that's exactly what happens. Uriah and some others are killed, and David makes Bathsheba his wife. And the chapter ends with these words. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. David gets it really wrong. He's confident in his own power of his kingship, and he abuses it. He's consumed only with what his lustful eyes can see, and he's blind to the plight of the people. He's a bully and a coward, and it informs his actions, and God isn't pleased. David didn't do everything God wanted. 
So in moments like these, when David's heart definitely does not align with God's heart, has David ceased to be the man God has his heart set on? To answer that question, we will need to go to a third person in our little fill-in-the-blank name game. So, David and the third hit on Google is Nathan. Now you might be thinking, who's Nathan? Well, Nathan uh, worked in David's court as a prophet, which I imagine was pretty tricky. Who do they serve? The God they're supposed to prophesy on behalf or the king who signs their paychecks? A prophet anointed by a king isn't going to be able to easily counter and contradict the will of a king. Nevertheless, in the life of David, God uses Nathan powerfully on at least uh, two occasions that are relevant to today's conversation. The first is found in 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 29. And this is long before Bathsheba and Uriah. This is when everything is coming up David. He's the king. He's in Jerusalem. He's got his loyal subjects. It's good. And David is sitting in his palace, resting from his enemies. And he realizes that he is living in this great palace that's built of cedar, while God's house is still just this like measly tent. And so he calls in Nathan the prophet, and he has a conversation. He calls in his prophet on retainer, and he says this, I want to build God a house. And so Nathan says this, Yeah, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that isn't actually true. It's just that Nathan doesn't want to bite the hand that feeds him. He doesn't want to contradict the will of the king. And that is a problem. Because as a king, David is starting to get used to getting what he wants. And and he's starting to get used to what he wants being what he feels like God wants. And it gets really dangerous when people start confusing what they want with what God wants. And then you mix power into that, and it's a recipe for disaster. So anyway, that night, after Nathan told that to David, the true word of the Lord comes to Nathan And this time, Nathan relays that word from God to David on this matter. And in summary, what God says to David is this. I haven't asked for a house, and I don't want you or need you to build me a house. David, you will not be building me a house, but I myself will establish a house for you. The house that God himself will build for David isn't a building. It's a household of people. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. My love will never be taken away. Your throne will be established forever. That's a promise that God gave to David regarding his family. This parental relationship between God and David's family will never be broken. 
And that doesn't mean that there's not going to be discipline or hardship, but God is guaranteeing that his love will never leave the house of David. Why? Because God promised it. That's what it means to be someone whom God has his heart set on. You can count on God's love never leaving. And that's also what it means to wait in faith for something that is going to come. A promise given to David that is actually a promise for his future family. Now, the second incident with David and Nathan happens nine months after David's adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Now, in a way that rivals any of the best episodes of Matlock or whatever your preferred courtroom drama is, Nathan expertly forces David to confront his own sin. And Nathan pronounces God's judgment on him. Nathan says this, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Now, the word of the Lord that David despised surely is all of the laws against adultery and murder and what a king was supposed to behave like. That's for sure. But it's also David disregarding and despising the specific word of promise that Nathan had delivered to God that we were just talking about. David wasn't doing everything that God wanted him to do. And even though he is still who God has his heart set on, David's heart could not be more misaligned. It's like he's despising the very word of God. Nathan states the consequences plainly. The sword will never depart from your house. Calamity will fall on you out of your own house. What you did in secret will be done to you in broad daylight. You'll lose your wives to another. And so much more. So David repents and God forgives. But from that day forward, David's whole life is a total mess. David should have died for his sin, according to the Old Testament law, but it is actually David and Bathsheba's son who dies. David's eldest son, Amnon, raped David's daughter, Tamar, and Absalom, David's other son and the brother of Tamar, killed Amnon for vengeance. And from that day forward, David has this rocky relationship with Absalom, and eventually Absalom rebels and forms a coup against David, but David survives and Absalom doesn't, and David is an utterly broken man. It is a huge mess. And all of the good that God does through David is intertwined with these consequences of his sin. But God's promise to build David a house remains. And so David, the man whom God has his heart set on, David gets it right with Goliath. David gets it wrong with Bathsheba. And David gets a promise from God, not because of what he got right or got wrong, but because of God's initiative, God's grace, God's faithfulness to the promises that he makes. So in light of this sermon series, oh, this PowerPoint clicker isn't really working. In light of this sermon series, what are the lessons that we learn from this Old Testament saint? First, David trusted God, and that takes relationship. Don't misunderstand what David got right. The point of David and Goliath isn't that underdogs sometimes win. Here's what David got right. He knew his capabilities, and he knew God's capabilities, and his actions lined up with both sets of capabilities. But ultimately, his trust was found in God, and that trust comes only with relationship. 
The book of Psalms directs to God the full range of human emotions and experience, and David wrote and inspired a huge chunk of them. His constant wrestling with God on a relationship level is captured for us in the book of Psalms to read and learn from. It looks, it looks and reads like a person's personal prayer journal, and it's the relationship that David had with God. So do you know God well enough to trust him with your life? Do you wrestle with God over everything and do you trust him? If you want to learn how to build a relationship of trust with God through prayer, start praying through the Psalms and apply that to your own life. That's what David got right. He knew God and that relationship with God allowed him to trust God even when other people didn't. Second lesson that we can learn from David is this. Nobody is perfect and be really careful to worship God and not people. Don't misunderstand what David got wrong. Sure, David committed the sins of adultery, murder, and many more. But the heart of David's sin is that he started to believe that what he wanted equals what God wants. It's easy enough to confuse our desires with what God desires. And it's easy enough to unintentionally find ourselves surrounded by people who will agree with our perspective on what God wants and give us permission to go ahead and do what makes us happy rather than authentically seek the will of God. We need to humbly admit that we aren't perfect and that our desires are not the gold standard and we need to seek God's will in our lives. Now, a faith hero screwing up is not license for us to do likewise. Sometimes I think people think, well, if David can get away with adultery and murder, well, I'm doing all right. Or maybe not biblical heroes, but they think to themselves, well, I'm doing a little bit better than that guy over there, so I think I'm okay. No, 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 no. David didn't get away with anything. God forgived him, but his life was messed up because of his sin right? Sin isn't measured against the people that we put on pedestals, and it isn't measured against the people that we think that we are better than. Sin is measured up against God and God's standards, and we have all come up short wanting. Now, there are constantly news stories about big church leader people, pastors and, and parachurch organization leaders who claim to be Christian, and who are Christian, who, who mess up royally, who screw up and lead a lot of people astray and do a lot of damage to the gospel. It turns out they've been living the same heart sin as David, where they start to believe this lie that what they want is what God wants, and it gets confused, and their life gets all messed up, and their ministries get messed up. We should be mourning these stories, and we should be praying for our Christian leaders. And we ourselves should learn to follow good examples without putting them on a pedestal. Because if you put them on a pedestal, there's only one way to go. And that's down. We need to stop worshiping imperfect people. And we all need to very carefully and intentionally worship God and God alone. We must let the truth of our sin lead to genuine repentance in our lives that calibrates our hearts back towards God. Now, the third lesson that we can take away from David is that God is faithful. 
And Jesus proves this on the cross. God's promise to David was really good news for Israel, and it sustained them as a nation through some real hardship, through exiles, through doom, and through impending doom. Understanding God's promise to David to refer to a future king, oops, Jeremiah writes this, The days are coming, declared the Lord, when I will rise up for David, a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. That is a good promise to hold on to when you are living in a time where the king is not doing wisely or being a just presence in the land. Understanding God's promise to David to refer to the people of Israel as a whole, Isaiah writes this, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. One way or the other, Israel knew God had made promises. And God had a plan to bring those promises about to full fruition. The hope fed their faith and kept them when they were going through their exiles and suffering. It kept them and it sustained them through those times where God felt really far off. They would say, no, I know that God is with us because he promised his love would never leave us. Now the promise, uh, the promise to David is really good news for us today. Because while David was a man after God's own heart, or a man who God's heart was set on, Jesus is the heart of God made flesh. God incarnate, the Son of God, the real deal. And our faith is not faith in sinful, broken heroes. We believe in Jesus who took the sin of the world and broke it. He did this not because we deserve it, but because his heart was set on doing it, his heart was set on us, his people. Hebrews goes on after the Hall of Faith to say this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know your whole life story. I don't know the particular details of what you are bringing to your hearing of this message that I've been preaching. I don't know if the video feed of your faith life plays like a highlight reel or if it's a marathon of bloopers and outtakes. I don't know if you're struggling. I don't know if you're soaring. But I do know that Jesus is in the business of making broken things into beautiful masterpieces. And he wants that for you. Jesus died on the cross for people that didn't even want him to die for them. He loved those that hated him. He did it that way because that is the heart of God exercising itself for the people who God has his heart set on. And that is you, and that is me, and that is the world. Now, David, apart from God, was a mess. And David, with God, was all confidence in what he hoped for, assurance in what he didn't see. He was faith in action. And even as a mess, God is faithful to finish the work that he starts to keep the promises that he makes. Apart from God, we are a mess but with God, it's a whole 
different story. So trust God, pursue relationship with him. People aren't perfect, so be careful to worship God and not people. And remember that God is faithful. Now to end our sermon, I would like to read through Romans 8, 31 to 39. There's some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Here's what they say. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's live out this truth in our daily lives. That is the truth that spurs us on to live a life of faith and action, action, the knowledge that Jesus' love will never be taken from us, no matter what comes our way. I think that's what we can learn from David. So here are some discussion questions for you to mull over. Do you ever measure your faithfulness against that of other Christians? Why or why not? Have you ever had a Christian hero let you down? And what did you do with that? And God's heart for us is central to the gospel of Jesus. Think John 3.16. In what ways is your heart in line with God's heart? And is there any area of your heart that needs to be brought back into alignment? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.